Well, I want to take a minute and welcome those who are joining us from home. Uh, I hope that you have coffee in your hand and you're still in your pajamas. Why not, right? Um, we aren't. So, um, but welcome. It's so nice to gather with you as well as this group of beautiful women in front of me. One thing I want to um, announce to you and those of you who live in Southern California at some point is um, May 8th, we're having Bunko Night. Bunko Mania. Now, some people, like, you don't like new situations, and it's like, I'm not that good with games. I can't, I don't know if, you know, I, I don't think I can learn it. Well, there's two little white cubes, and you throw them. You do that. Now, if you look at them, and they're the same, it's called a double, so you got, they're the same, that's all you have to know. <laughs> they're the same, and then someone else will score for you. So there you go. You can come to Bunko. And the fun part is that everybody who's dignified pre-Bunko and post-Bunko, <laughs> during Bunko, are not. It's kind of wild. There's a lot of laughter and a lot of getting to know each other. So um, put that on your calendar. And it's a week from Monday, so it's May 8th, in this building. I think it's 7 o'clock. Is that what it says? Yeah, 7 o'clock. So. Uh, and just to RSVP online, just so they know how many tables to set up. Deal? Deal. You guys are good. On your tables, there will be an offering envelope. Uh, it's not required. It is simply, if you have a little bit, you can drop in there. It offsets the cost of our books and our childcare, our coffee, and things like that. So thanks for that. Um, when I was on staff here, I used, my name's Kathy, if you don't know me. If you don't know me, where have you been? No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, was, I was on staff here for um, several years, but I used to teach... Dude. Um, when I was on staff back in the day, um, when we first got electricity, um, I taught a class called Partnership, and it's, it's like a membership class, even though at CA we don't have an official membership. Um, but one of the questions I loved asking the people who came is, what brought you to CA the first time, and then why did you come back? Because usually the first time we come because someone invited us, or we know somebody getting baptized or dedicated or something. But why did you come back? And people said things like, I remember one couple said, well, our kids said they want to go to the fun church, not that other one. <laughs> so whatever gets them here, right? Other people said they love the music, different things. Many said they just, when they walked in the atmosphere, there's something they felt when they walked in the door. So it was always very uplifting to me to hear their stories. But I remember in particular one couple who said they came in, they got here a little early, so they were inside the sanctuary on the south side, and um, this really nice man came up and kind of just sat in front of them, turned around and introduced himself. And, and they were talking, and he asked, like, what brought you, and that kind of thing. He said, well, he's very nice. He didn't seem to be an usher because he wasn't ushering anybody. He was just talking to them. And then they watched him and he went over to say hi to a few people. And then they watched him picking up like scraps of paper that were on the floor and straightening a couple of chairs. And they thought, oh, he must be facilities. So he could be an usher. He could be facilities. He could. And then after the singing part, he stood up and preached the sermon. So it was Mark Pickerel. If you've been at CA any length of time, that's Mark. So in this one instance, in this couple's eyes, he was a greeter, an usher, he was the maintenance guy, and he brought the word of God. 
but it's just one person. All of that was encapsulated, is still encapsulated in who Mark is. Well, as I was reading John 18, there's so much here. And if you've been in church any length of time, how many Easter's have you sat through? How many studies in John have you heard? The story is not new. So I was preparing. It's just like, you know, I'll, I'll tell it the same. It's always been told. I'm not trying to find a new story. But God, what is it you have for us right now? We're just, we've come out of Easter a few weeks ago. And what do you have? And, and I believe what God has given us for this morning is looking at Jesus and three roles or identities that Jesus carries in this story. So we're going to start with uh, verses 1 through 11. It says this, when Jesus had spoken these words, now what, that, what he's referring to is, if you remember, in John 17, he's prayed this long prayer for his disciples and those who would come after, for unity, those. So he has this beautiful prayer it ends in 17, and then 18 begins. It's connected. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The first thing we see about Jesus in John 18 is that he is the I am. Now, the garden that they're in, they had walked um, into the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley. If you've been to Israel and seen it, there's this there's the city, Jerusalem, a city on a hill. There's a valley, and then the Mount of Olives is here. And uh, I read that there, the, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, there were private gardens where the wealthy in Jerusalem would come like on a hot evening or something to kind of cool off. So there were, there were like individual gardens in a way, and Jesus had access to one of those. Don't know how, but that's how it would have worked. And so Judas did know where to find Jesus because they'd been here before. He knew which garden. And it was called Gethsemane. That's the garden they were in. And so it says that they came... Judas gets this, it says a band of soldiers in this translation. And in the commentaries I looked at, this could have been up to, I think it was 400 soldiers. Now, most of the plays or movies or pictures we see, there's about six, because that's how many you can get in the picture, right? So, um, but however many there were, 
Let's say there weren't that many, there were 100. Let's say there were 50. This is, like, this is pretty disruptive, soldiers, because they're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. So this is a real movement into the garden. And um, it's interesting the way they came. What were they expecting? Now, it's Passover. We know that um, Jesus had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover is always celebrated under a full moon. So it wasn't pitch black. They could have seen. But what was it they were expecting? Was, was it a fight? Did they think Jesus would be hiding? Were they waiting for an ambush? We don't know, but they came armed as though Jesus had up to this point been a militant rebel leading a group of militants against Rome. So they come. They had seen Jesus publicly countless times, right? He's, he's talking to the Pharisees, the very ones that have put this band of soldiers, or, yeah, soldiers together. So he's, they come all armed, but he's been public. He's, he's said everything publicly, but yet here they come. Now it's interesting, you have this band, not just six guys, there's a, there's a group. And in most modern translations of verse five, after they said, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. That's how it's translated, I am the one. In the Greek, it's actually this phrase, ego eimi, which means I am. He just says, I am. And <laughs> I think this is funny. Picture it. All these soldiers, they got their swords, they got their lantern. It's like, and who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they step back and they fall down. I just think that's cool. <laughs> and then they get back up and Jesus says, who is it you're looking for? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, I'm the one you want to let these guys go. So when Jesus says, I am, this is a highly significant term that he says. Because almost 2,000 years prior, if you remember a guy named Moses, you've probably seen the movie, read the book. <laughs> Moses is a murderer who is, has gone to the desert to avoid being um, prosecuted. He stutters. This is a guy who runs into a bush that's on fire but not burning up. And God tells him, Moses, I want you to go back into Egypt because I have got, some commentaries say it could be up to 2 million whatever the number is, it's a whole parcel of Israelites are slaves in Egypt. And he says, I want you to go break them out. Moses, good question. He says, um, when I go talk to them, who should I say sent me? Because they're not going to listen to me. And God says in Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. Now, it's interesting in John's gospel, because we've been studying it now for weeks, that John in particular in the gospels focuses on Jesus as the I am. In John 4.26, he says, I am the Messiah. In John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am from above. 
John 8, 58, I am before Abraham, meaning he's eternal. John 8, I am the light of the, John 9, I'm sorry, I'm the light of the world. John 10, I am the door or gate. John 10, 36, I am the son of God. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 13, I am your Lord and master. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. The I am. All of this is, is captured in this one humble-looking man who it tells us in, in prophecy in Isaiah, he was not pretty. The pictures that modern-day artists do of him, he's kind of rugged or handsome or gentle-looking or whatever. It says he was ugly. So this little guy, this nothing that would draw you to him, the Bible says. All of this is captured in this man. We jump into Revelation, so this is future, and it says he, meaning Jesus, is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. In uh, Revelation 1.17, he is the first and the last. The man that stands before this band of soldiers is the great I Am. The weight and power of this description and identification is really beyond our understanding. At least it's beyond my comprehension. All that is God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, full of grace, mercy, love, all contained in the I Am. The soldiers asked for a guy by the name of Jesus, and they were confronted with the great I Am. Let's move on to verse 12, verses 12 to 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. It's interesting. Jesus says, I am. Peter says, I am not. I just like that. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now before I finish this passage, I want to uh, tell you something I thought was very interesting. Jewish law had a part of the law that was like, very similar to what we would call our Fifth Amendment. You can't be required to testify against yourself. 
you can take the Fifth Amendment. Well, that was part of Jewish law. So when, when Anna says to him, what have you been teaching? And he's, this is not a, a, a government court. This is a religious court. It's the Jewish court. And so they're asking him to tell them what he said so that they can indict him. But they know what he said. Because if you remember all through the Gospels, like they're there all the time when he's talking. So Jesus, when Caiaphas, when Annas asked him that, and Jesus said, you know what, I, he didn't answer him directly, did he? He says, you know what I've been talking about? And then he gets slapped for it. So he says to the guy, in essence, he's saying, this is already an illegal trial. It should be thrown out. So he's brought on these charges. The trial is, um, the questioning is already twisted, and it's going to get worse. But I thought that was interesting that Jesus knew that. <laughs> he just didn't put up with a lot, even though he's very humble, and I think that's kind of cool. Picking up verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. It's interesting, this passage of scripture goes from Jesus with Annas, and then it goes to Peter in the courtyard, then it goes back to Jesus' questioning and back to Peter's questioning. And there's this juxtaposition against the I am and the I am not. I thought that was cool. So the second thing we see about Jesus in these scriptures is that he is the lamb. He's the I am and he is the lamb. Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Um, you probably remember that this is a major Jewish holiday commemorating when Israel, going back to Moses now, when Israel was broken out of Egypt. And remember, to make his point, God sent um, plagues. There were frogs and there was blood. There was all kinds of things. The final plague was the death angel. This was a plague where God sent the death angel to blow or go across Egypt. And the firstborn of every family, human and animal, the firstborn of every family would die in one night. Except God made a way. He told Israel, sacrifice a lamb, take the blood and brush it over the doorpost of your house. And when the death angel comes through and it sees the blood, it will pass over that home, hence the name Passover. So everyone who did put the blood was spared. They were passed over by death. Death was defeated because of the blood. And now Jesus alone understands what is happening. He alone knows what's happening. All that's taking place. He's the spotless lamb come to set people free of their bondage from sin and ultimately to defeat death. That's who he is and what he's doing. Now in the other three gospels, we get a, a, a more detailed explanation of Jesus in the garden, his prayer when we know the term, he sweat like drops of blood, that he said, God, if there's any other way. But then he lands on this, not my will, but yours. If there's any other way. And it's interesting because that was the point at which Jesus surrendered so fully 
that from that point on, everything that happened to him, someone else decided. They bound him when they let him out of the garden. They took him to Annas, who passed him over to Caiaphas, who passed him over to Pilate. Jesus had made his surrender, and after that, he just followed the path that God had laid out. It's a big thing, the way we surrender. We don't know what's ahead of us. Jesus did. We don't know, but in that surrender, we will find everything we were created for. Our very best life comes in that point of surrender. So Jesus is being led like a lamb to slaughter. In Isaiah 53, 7, now this is like 800 years before Jesus shows up, and this prophecy is given. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Then we get into the book of John, the first chapter. Remember, John the Baptist is baptizing, and Jesus is walking toward him. And John stops and says, in John 1.29, the next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming, and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about Christ, and he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jump to Revelation. We got up, boy, over here, the lamb. We got the lamb down here in Revelation. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb. In Revelation 15, 3, and they sing the song of Moses. <laughs> Moses again? So beautiful. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, and just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. The picture of Israel in slavery and a Lamb dying for their freedom, and now Jesus bound, led from Annas to Caiaphas, then to Pilate, then to the cross. Even one, not even one of Jesus' closest friends or followers was there. Peter denies him. No one defended him. He was absolutely alone, like a lamb led to slaughter. At this point, it's an interesting convergence we see as things unfold. We know the intention of the Jewish high priests and the Pharisees. They wanted Jesus crucified. They wanted him done, gone. We know the intentions of the Roman government, which I'll talk about in just a second, which would be um, Pilate. His was to get out with his hands clean. How can he do this and make as little trouble as possible, not make Rome mad? But what overrides everything and the reason that all this can converge is because God's intention is the one that wins. God's intention is that Jesus would come, bear the weight and sin of all time on his shoulders and die for us. God's plan is being unfolded, not that of the Jewish leaders, not that of the Roman government, but God's plan is unfolding. So he moved now to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. 
They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and could eat the Passover. Seriously, people. They have God tied up. They're taking him, but they don't want to defile themselves. So they can eat. I mean, it's laughable, but it also scares me. It's like, how many times have I been that ignorant of what I was doing? I mean, they're just doing their job, right? They have God bound up, and they don't want to defile themselves by going inside Pilate's house. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him to you. (laughs) They're not the brightest people on the planet at this point because it's like, okay, like what are the charges? Well, he's bad or we wouldn't bring him. (laughs) Pilate said, then take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. There's no trial. He just says, no, we can't kill him, so we have to bring him to you. That was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Because Jews, uh, crucifixion was a Roman um, uh, death. It wasn't a Jewish death. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. This is an interesting, it harkens back to the picture in the garden where they came ready for a fight. He said, if I were trying to build a kingdom here like this, we'd have fought, but they didn't. Well, Peter, but you know Peter. (laughs) Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back and saw outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you don't, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. He was a lot of things. He, wasn't, he didn't just get caught you know, stealing bread or something. He was a bad dude. So the third thing we see about Jesus He is the king. Now, Pilate is a governor, so this is a political trial rather than a religious one. Jesus has already been through the religious one, which was a kangaroo court, as they would say. And Pilate wants none of this. He doesn't want to be involved in this. And there's a reason. Historically, Pilate has been in big trouble twice with Rome because he apparently isn't the brightest bulb in the pack, and he he makes these decisions that causes insurrections. There's always a lot of trouble with the Jewish people in this area because Pilate keeps doing the wrong thing. So Pilate is just trying to stay in his house, keep his title. So he doesn't want this major confrontation. He doesn't want to cause an insurrection among the Jews or tick off Rome. So he's kind of in a tight spot of his own making.
His highest desire is to pacify these leaders and let them handle it themselves. Now, their response is interesting. They said, we don't want to do this because it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Why is that? Interesting. Two years before this, just two years earlier, Rome had withdrawn from Israel the right to capital punishment. They could not any longer, for two years now, they could not, through their law, kill anyone. Now, when this happened, the, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees had walked through the streets throwing dirt on their head, tearing their clothes, and crying out, God has failed us, God has failed us. It was a huge thing two years prior when that happened. Why? Because in Genesis 49.10, a part of the blessing or promise to Israel was that the scepter, which would be like the ruler's staff, would not depart from Judah until the Messiah came. And because the scepter represented self-governance, and that had been taken from them, and there was no Messiah in sight, God's promise had been broken. God has failed us, God has failed us. Who was on the scene two years prior? The Messiah. He was here, they didn't recognize him. They came against him instead of listening to him. God has failed us, God has failed us, God has not failed you. You're not looking. This is another one of those passages that stops me in my tracks. It's like, God, where are you that I'm not recognizing you? Where am I pushing against, moving against you in ways that I should be embracing and listening? and getting it. So Jesus stands before Pilate, who in essence hears the charges against Jesus and asks if he's king of the Jews. Jesus' response is interesting because he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And what he's saying is, my kingdom doesn't come from this world. My kingdom comes from another world. But what he also says is, my kingdom is for this world. Hugely important, right? Because when Jesus first starts his ministry, he said, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom is here. As soon as he showed up, the kingdom of God went from there to here and was given to men in a way that never had been before because the Son of God had come to make peace, to, to put us back together with the God who made us. So Jesus is talking about being king and he basically says, this is not, I'm not here to overthrow Rome. I bring a whole different kingdom. And it is different than anything you've ever seen. His kingdom is not politically against Rome. That's probably why Pilate was just like, well, you guys take him. I don't have a problem with him. Jesus' kingdom doesn't come from the world, but it is for this world. And we've been called to be part of it. So Pilate has no grounds to convict the guy. But he does. In the garden, remember when Peter lops off an ear? Well, we learn in Luke twenty-two fifty-one that Jesus picked up the ear and put it back. He healed Malchus. Had he not done that, there's a good chance there would have been four crosses on the hill that day. Peter had attacked. It was a militant movement then. Peter did exactly 
what Jesus said they wouldn't do. I read a thing. It's just, I got to give you this. I love it. I heard, um, I was reading a thing where a guy, they were talking, or was it a podcast? I don't know. But someone said, well, did you just think, like, what would Jesus do? Because, you know, it's like, and he said, well, to be honest, I was so mad, I didn't want to do the right thing. I said, well, what would Peter do? <laughs> and so I found things, I found things since I read that a few weeks ago, and I thought, what would Peter, no, don't go there, what would Peter do? God had a plan for Jesus, and he had a plan for Peter, and it wasn't to die that day on a cross. God's perfect will is still being fulfilled here. Now, if we hark back to another garden called Eden thousands of years before, the first man, Adam, rebelled against the Father's will. In this garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, who in 1 Corinthians is called the last Adam, submitted fully to the Father's will. Adam in the Garden of Eden, hid from God. At Gethsemane, Jesus is fully transparent before God. In Eden, man was driven out because of their sin. Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden. In Gethsemane, Jesus prepares to die for that sin. In Eden, a sword was unsheathed. We read in Genesis 3.24, when Adam and Eve were taken out of the Garden of Eden so that they couldn't get back in. An angel is planted there with a flaming sword that is doing this all the time so that no one can get in. So a sword is unsheathed in Eden. And in Gethsemane, Jesus says, put your sword away. That which was lost in the Garden of Eden is being reclaimed in the Garden of Gethsemane and will be fully experienced in the garden of paradise that is heaven. Look at God's plan, how amazing he is. The great I am, the lamb of God, the king of kings, is dying for Barabbas. He's dying for Peter who denied him. He's dying for Israel who demanded his execution. He's dying for the world. He's dying for you. He's dying for me. He is the great I am. He is the Lamb of God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he loves you completely with a plan for your life that fully involves him. So I want to pause as we, right before we move to our tables, but whether for the first time, in fact, would you close your eyes? Let's um, create some space. Same for you at home. Just take this moment and make a quiet place. Whether for the first time, if you've been investigating faith and considering it, gathering information, whatever else, all you really need to know is that the God who made you has made a way for you to be in perfect relationship with him. Do we fully understand it? No. A life's journey, no matter how long you're following God, walking with Jesus, our life's journey is always a bit of a mystery, 
and always our best plan. So if you've never said yes to Jesus, it's as simple as saying, I don't know what this will look like, but I surrender. I choose you over me. I recognize that you have been beckoning, inviting me. So even if you're watching this from home or somewhere else, pause a minute and just say, God, I choose you. Show me now how to live your way. Full surrender brings a full life. And so for those who've followed Christ for years, who've walked with God, you've done best you know to live a life that honors him. Would you again surrender? Now, Holy Spirit, would you speak to each heart? Where is it that we have kind of taken back some of the rule of our own life? We're making decisions because we just want them or because we're too afraid of what the other direction might look like. God, my deepest prayer is that all of us, including me, would surrender. God, if there's an easy way, we want that. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done in my life and through my life and for the sake of my life. Thank you, Lord, for your absolute goodness, the grace that calls us, fills us, and draws us forward. And I pray in this moment that um, for our staff here at CA that is up in the mountains, may your Holy Spirit just wash over them, renew their body, soul, spirit, renew their calling, you are such a good God, our great I am, our humble lamb, our king of kings and lord of lords. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.